All right. Thank you for being here, guys. Got what I hope will be a very good lesson for you today. If not, don't worry. This will be the last time you see me this year. This will be the last, last time I have to teach for 2021. Um, today we're going to be looking at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector found in Luke chapter 18. But we are going to begin with a word of prayer. So please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come into this room to open up your word and to study the things that you would teach us today. In light of this study, I can't help but keep this prayer short and simply say thank you for what you've done for us. And please illuminate the things that you want us to know through this message. Please allow your Holy Spirit to teach us. Please allow us to be convicted, to be warned, and to be encouraged by your word through the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So, I'll begin simply by reading through the passage. Parable starts in verse 10. I'll read verse 9 as well. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying, to this, praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. One of the first things I that came to mind when I started going through this study was evangelism. When we go out into the, into the streets, especially the past weekend I was out there and, and it was our last evangelism of the, of, of the year, and uh, we always kind of start with this presupposition. We always ask people, whenever we can, sometimes we start with just basic conversations, but almost always we start with the basic question, are you good enough to go to heaven? Are you a good enough person to enter into the kingdom of God? We do this because we know typically what the response is going to be. Yes, I'm good enough. People will say, yeah, of course I'm going to go to heaven. There's not even a question in their mind. They're already thinking the answer is yes. They're determined. They're, you can already see the, the, the clock working in their brain. They're already determined to justify themselves and to tell me all of the ways in which they deserve to go to heaven, why they are guaranteed entrance. This parable kind of does something very similar. We might make the mistake of thinking that this parable is just about prayer, about humility and prayer and how we approach God, but it's not. This is a really important parable. This is about salvation because of what Jesus says, that this parable is about justification, and it's through justification. We, we're saved through faith, but the process of faith saving us is through justification. That's what it accomplishes. 
So in a way, this parable sort of skips to the end of the gospel message. It assumes that those present already do believe that they're good enough to go to heaven. But instead, Jesus stings them with the only truly relevant question, are you justified enough to go to heaven? So as we open up this parable, I hope that we'll examine that, that we'll examine ourselves to see if we are justified enough to go into the kingdom of God. So as we said, this is, we, we want to set up our narrative. We want to understand the context of the, of the parable first. So this is the Gospel of Luke. And this is, uh, Luke's gospel was written for a very specific reason. This is a historical account of Jesus Christ. It's chronological. Luke tells us that at the very beginning of his gospel in chapter 1, he says, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So he goes through, he wants Theophilus to know everything that's been recorded about Jesus Christ so that he'll be able to separate truth from fact. And he'll be able to get a full accounting, a a nice clear picture of who Jesus Christ was in his head as he wrestles with the things of salvation. In the first 10 chapters, we see him recount the birth of both Jesus and John the Baptist. He recounts the genealogy of Christ, talks about his temptation in the wilderness, and then he began to read about the the, the ministry that Jesus started to, to accomplish in, in and around the, the city of Galilee. And then, in the second sort of, there's sort of gospels broken into three parts. In the second part that we read in Luke 9.51, there's this point where he's in Galilee, and it says, then we see a change as we, uh, as I said, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And from Luke 9.51 on, Jesus is barreling towards Jerusalem. Everything he's doing, everything he's ministering is on his way to Jerusalem. He knows that his time is near. And then that's accomplished all, you know, he, you know we see him send out the 70 disciples to evangelize in the city where he was headed towards throughout much of the, the several chapters in between. We hear about Jesus and his run-ins with the Pharisees, um, including this one that we see that we're going to see in chapter 18. And then following all this stuff, in the very next chapter, chapter 19, we read in verse 28 that Jesus actually approaches Jerusalem. And this is his final entry, his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. So this historical account that Luke is giving us places this parable right near the very end of Jesus' ministry, right before his finished work on the cross. His final week on earth is about to begin as he approaches the city of Jerusalem. We're days away from his crucifixion. So what's this immediate context? Why do we find this parable here? Well, I believe it's because Jesus sees that end in sight. He knows that his final days are approaching. He knows that he's about to be crucified, that his disciples will be without him for for a short time. He's already trying to get them focused on two things, his second coming and prayer. We see that in chapter 17 where he teaches. He sort of warns everybody about the coming judgment and uh, when he returns to judge the world. And then in Luke 18, we first read about this parable of prayer of the persistent widow. And next time Marvin's here, he's going to teach through that parable. It's going to be a really great study. But he's sort of teaching the, the, the disciples that, that prayer is very important, that they should never lose hope in prayer. They should never lose sight of, of, of God's sovereignty and God's work and God's ability to answer prayer, that they should always be about that work. 
And then he sort of shifts in this second part of the passage, this parable that we just read, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, why does he do this? Well, I think it's because, A, he's keeping up with his theme. As I said, when we were talking about parables in the very beginning, what did I say parables had the effect of doing? They're always, well, for the most part, they are pitting two, they're sort of giving you two opposing examples of something. He's saying, this is one thing, this is the other thing, this represents my kingdom. This is a, peop- a person or uh, an idea that belongs in the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God looks like, and this is what it does not look like. He's creating divisions. He's teaching people that you are doing, if you're on this side of the parable, you're a righteous man, you belong in my kingdom. If you're on the other side, you have nothing to do with me. We see that time and time again, especially regarding Pharisees, right? We saw that in, lost my place again. We saw that in Luke chapter 10, right? This specific idea with the Good Samaritan, right? Christ is talking to, to Pharisees and he's talking to, he says, the, the, the man says, who is my neighbor? And he talks about all these people that par- passed up uh, the man who was beaten on the side of the road, but it was the Samaritan that reflected the kingdom of God that gave everything he could so that this man would be made well and that he would be made whole. We see that again in Luke chapter 15 with the prodigal son, right? We see the, the man who, was, who, who squandered his, his father's inheritance and he goes and he lives with swine and then he tries to come home and be reconciled. But what did the brother say? The brother wouldn't even go into the house. He said, Father, you never gave me these things. And the father said, you always had access to these things. But the, the son came back. He repented. He, he wanted to be restored to me. You just wanted the gifts. The restored son was reflective of my kingdom, and you are not. And he was directing that towards the Pharisees. So now we come to this parable. And once again, we see two men pitted up against one another, and two men that you wouldn't expect to see pitted up against one another. We see this Pharisee, and we see this tax collector, and there's a lot of differences between them, but let's go quickly and just just point out a couple of things about what they have in common. Both they are theists. They both believe in the one true God. They're both coming to the temple, the place where God was supposed to reside, this is where God's dwelling place was, and they both understood that prayer was to be conducted in the temple. They both claimed to believe in God. We also understand that these were both men of prayer, that they both believed in the power of prayer, that they both believed that God wanted his people to pray. Unfortunately, that's where the similarities kind of end. But this is a completely unexpected comparison. People that were hearing this parable were probably going to be very shocked because, as Christ tends to do, he kind of flips everything on its head. And they wouldn't have expected to hear what they were about to hear. First thing that we're told about is two men that entered the temple, and there was a Pharisee and there was a tax collector. So just by hearing that, the people hearing this parable already have a picture in their their mind about what's about to happen. The Pharisee was a man of God. The term Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word, parash, which means to divide or separate. These were known as the separated ones. They were considered the holy ones, 
Over the time through their captivity and the return to Jerusalem, the Jewish religion had drifted away from the strict Levitical priesthood. And there were these religious groups that started to grow with more importance and more notoriety. We're told that we had the, um, the Sadducees, who were those that actually conducted temple worship, right? We're told that there were groups like the, the Sanhedrin, who were the, the, the elders of the time, the, the, San, um, the, uh, the Pharisees, and you had the Zealots, right? Those are the ones who opposed Roman rule. You had scribes who weren't necessarily a religious group, but they were constantly and closely associated with them because they were the ones that copied the holy books for people to read. So they had sort of the, to have this understanding of what they were copying over. And people that heard the word Pharisee immediately would have thought particular things about this man. First of all, that he was a teacher. The Pharisees were teachers. They wore many hats at that point. Their their role was religious, it was political, it was social, it was even philosophical. But they were known as rabbi. They were called rabbi, which means master or teacher. They often taught others about the law of Moses and how to live according to it. They were highly orthodoxed and believed in keeping strictly to the laws of Moses and also what we would call maintaining traditions that we'll learn about in a couple minutes. These men were highly respected Within their communities, they were known for being men of God who could counsel and teach on what it meant to live according to the law. They counseled and studied and they worshipped. We're told that Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee, was a teacher. When Jesus Christ was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said, Are you not a teacher of the people of Israel and you don't know these things? They had a public, very public ministry. Many of what they did was done out in the open and in public. They would usually go to public squares and very crowded streets where they would pray to be seen by people, and sometimes just for that purpose. They wanted people to see them being religious. They wanted to be exemplary of what it meant to be a man of God. And one of the most important, probably notable things that we see here is that The Pharisees were kind of lawmakers because in addition to keeping the laws of Moses, they were known heavily for trying to keep to their traditions or their customs or what they even considered laws. They claimed that these traditions were handed down through through the scribes orally and the priests over the years and that people had a moral obligation to keep them. We read about that pretty clearly in Mark chapter 7. I'll read the passage for you. It says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him, talking about Jesus, when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men." 
neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. That is a perfect passage to describe who the Pharisees were. This is something that they did time and time again. They essentially did what I've, I've heard called, and it's perfectly reflective, they would put a fence around the law. For that, it put that way many times, and it's a perfect example. They see this moral law, right, in the center, and they know that they can't keep it, that it's impossible for them to actually keep that law. So they sort of create these little laws around it that they can keep to make themselves feel righteous and holy. We may not be able to stop from having impure thoughts, but we can have clean hands. So we wash our hands as often as possible. Therefore, we can claim righteousness. So they were strict about keeping the quote-unquote law, and they insisted that everyone else would do the same. Jesus claimed that these men were, weren't really religious at all, but they were hypocrites. By raising the bar, they lowered the standard. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5.20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. God's standard was not the Pharisees' standard of righteousness. Now let's look at the tax collector. The tax collector, for anybody hearing this parable, would not have been considered a religious man. This was a man that represented Rome. The tax collector, some translations will say publican, um, or if you're uh, NASB like mine is, it'll say publican in the title and then translate tax collector anyways. Uh, But that's an important distinction because a publican wasn't necessarily a tax collector. The publicans, the the Roman publicans or Latin publicanus, um, were Romans. The publicans were actually Romans. They would actually buy pieces of land and property at auction from Rome in order to, to have the right to maintain that property. They would govern over that property. They would be responsible for enforcing law on that property and for collecting taxes in that property. Or I don't know if they enforced law, but they certainly had access to armies. They were backed up by the armies of Rome. So they would be the ones responsible for collecting the taxes in that province for Rome, and then they would give the rest. They would give that money to Rome. They would supply it to Rome. The tax collectors because these were usually large pieces of land, the publicans couldn't handle all of it, they would hire locals. They would hire, you know, didn't have to be Jews, but in this case we're talking about local Jewish men that they would hire to be the actual tax collectors on their behalf. So the tax collectors would collect for the publicans, the publicans were collecting on behalf of Rome, and the money just kept getting funneled into the imperial bank account. So these local Jewish tax collectors are what are being spoken about here. This is who we're talking about. And when they heard this man, they would not have seen him as they saw the Pharisee. They would have had different words in mind. The first word being a traitor. These Jewish men were looked on as traitors by their peers. When you think about it, to be a Jewish man, just one second. When you're a Jewish man, you're aligning yourself with Rome, a foreign invader, a Gentile empire for the purpose of taking money from God's people that would then go into an imperial treasury. These men were considered the lowest of the low in in the eyes of the Jews. Yes, brother. 
Yes, that was actually my very next point. So thank you for getting ahead of it. Uh, that's why they were often considered sinners. That was one of, it, wasn't, it, wasn't just, it wasn't just something that they did under the table. This was actually an expected practice. It was done by the publicans, and it was done by the tax collectors alike. Rome didn't care how it got its money as long as it got its money, right? If it needed 100 talents from a providence, it would just say, we need 100 talents. The publican would then go to all of his people, all of his tenants, and say, I need 110. And then he would pocket that 10 for himself. The tax collectors would do the same thing. If a particular tenant, a particular uh, uh, homestead required 100 denarius, he'd say, I need 110. And he would pocket 10 in his pocket, and he would give the rest to the the publican, and and it just kept going up the food chain, and just more and more uh, extortion against their fellow Jews. This is how they actually made most of their money, was by extorting it from their their brothers in in the Lord. In uh, Luke 3, John the Baptist talks to them, uh, tax collectors, verse 12, he says, And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Right? This was, it was understood that this was a vile practice, that it shouldn't be done, and there were people obviously preaching against it. Finally, to hear the word tax collector would have brought another word to mind, which would have been unclean. These men were considered unclean and unfit for the holy temple. Why? Well, as you might expect, working for Gentiles, collecting Gentile taxes, delivering extorted funds to Gentile hands, this made the tax collectors tainted or corrupted or unclean in the eyes of the Jews. They were declared unclean, and mind you, they weren't automatically unclean simply because of the fact that they were tax collectors, but because of the nature of their work and whom they worked for. When you put all this together, the fact that Jesus pits this tax collector against this Pharisee almost seems like an easy victory for the Pharisee. Of course, this Pharisee is going to come out on top before you even continue with your speech. But then we actually get to the substance of their prayers. Right? We've, talked, we've looked at two men, now we're going to look at their prayers. There's two completely separate and distinct prayers happening here. First, let's look at the prayer of the righteous man, the Pharisee. We saw it was a bold prayer. It says the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. To himself meaning separate from the others. Holy, the separated one. We would assume in, the, in this case, being a Pharisee, that he would have been as close as he could have been to the holiest of holies in, in the temple. Feeling he was, had, had this bold, already self-righteous uh, justification within himself, he boldly approached the throne and was just convinced that of, his, of his right to be there. It was a thankful prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. And quickly the prayer devolves. He thanks God for what he is able to accomplish. Thank you that I am not like other people. He's immediately, he's, he's, he's thanking God, but he's not relating to God. He's relating to other people. Yes, Ben? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, the famous Bart Simpson prayer, right, from dinner. God, we paid for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. That's, that's pretty much what the, the Pharisee is doing. He's, 
He's simply there because he's required to be there. He doesn't actually have thanksgiving in his heart, right? We're in the spirit of thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving season. All the songs we talked about, count your blessings one by one. This man is simply saying, thanks that I'm not as bad as everybody else. It is a prayer of consideration, though. I thank you that I am not like other people swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even this tax collector, you can kind of feel his eyes peering the room, scanning, trying to determine, you know, they say like when you're in a conversation about money, make sure you're the smartest person in the room. Sort of the same thing. He wants to, you know, if he's going to make a a declaration that he's not like the other sinners, he's sort of making sure he's the most righteous person in the room before he makes the prayer. His eyes are everywhere except forward. They're everywhere except up. They're down. They're looking down on all of the people there. And then finally, it's a boastful prayer. Find that in verse 12. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. By Jewish law, the, the, the fast only had to occur on the Day of Atonement. This man was praying, was fasting 104 times a year. Right? That makes him 104 times more righteous than anybody else that was just fasting on the Day of Atonement. He established how bad he isn't. Now he wants to remind God of how good that he is. I deserve to be here. Look at all that I'm doing for you. And now we contrast that. We look at the prayer of a corrupt traitor in verse 13. We see that it was a fearful prayer. The tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. It's worth noting from the start that this tax collector technically shouldn't have even been here. We already said he was unclean in the eyes of the Pharisee. The Pharisee, if he was doing his job, would have understood that the temple was meant for honest, righteous worship, and he would have asked the tax collector to go. That was a common practice in that time. He said, you are unclean. You are not fit to worship in this temple. Go make yourself clean and then come back. But he didn't do that. He simply liked him there because he got to boast above him. He got to rise himself above this tax collector. But the tax collector was standing some distance away, fearful to to enter into the, the, the dwelling place of God, understanding that people who entered the holiest of holies without being clean were struck dead instantly. And he was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Just complete brokenness. Complete reverence in in a man who, who, who feels the awesome weight of the glory of God in front of him. It was a reverent prayer. It says that the tax collector standing some distance away was even willing to open his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's almost completely devoid of self. Both of these men are addressing God, but this man says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Do the work. The Pharisee said, thank God that I am not like other men. I tithe. I fast. He mentions the word I like five times in that prayer. He's all concerned with himself. We see that this prayer was an agonizing prayer. He was beating his breast. The tax collector was struggling through this prayer. He was beating his breast, which was known as an as a, as a expression of mourning, especially at that time. We still do it today. I mean, I've had those prayers. I'm sure you've had those prayers where you just, you just can't sit still. There's just something in you. you just, you're wrestling. 
even with your, your physical constitution, your very nature, you can't, you know, you're, you're just sort of disgusted with yourself and you, you don't feel comfortable in your own skin. His entire physical condition was changed through this prayer. Yes, Lewis. Amen. Yeah, and we see when people are sort of demon-possessed, they sort of also have this sort of physical condition as well, but it causes them to act out against themselves. This man had a physical condition that caused him to, to simply be, be uneased by being in the presence of God. And we see that over and over and over again as people are faced with God. Yes, Brother Tom. Amen. Yes, brother. Yes, sister. No, no, you're right. You're right. He he was. He wasn't there. He wasn't there. He's not there looking for mercy. He wants a gift. Yes. Amen. Yes, sister. Well, you said the word mercy, right? <clears throat> well, we're going to see that next because that's a really important part. It's actually the thing I'm most grateful about when I go through these studies is you learn something that you feel is really important, right? And people, I constantly tell people I want to learn Greek. And they're like, why do you want to learn Greek? It's all the work has been done for you, you know? And I'm like, no, there are some things you really want to learn in Greek. And we find that in, in this prayer. If we actually look at this prayer, which I call here a desperate prayer, the prayer reads in Greek, And I want you to focus for a word as it's as it translated, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Focus on that word merciful for just a second. Did I lose my place again? No, I didn't. The word that's typically translated as mercy is the word eleo means to have pity on, to have mercy on. We find that word later on in this very chapter. Look ahead to, to Luke chapter 18, verses 38 and 39. It's used twice. And, God, and he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have eleo, mercy on me. 
Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have Eleo mercy on me. This man was looking for mercy, for him to have pity on him. But that's not the word that's used here in verse 13. The word helostati has a completely different meaning. It makes you wonder why they translated it into mercy. The word is also used in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews 2, verse 17 reads, Therefore, He had to be made like his brethren in all things, talking about Jesus, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, the word mercy is found in 17 there, but that's not the word that's the same. The word that's the same is propitiation. Helostathy means to make propitiation, to be propitious. That's what this tax collector is asking for. He isn't just asking for mercy. He's not saying, oh God, simply be merciful to me. He's saying instead, oh God, be propitiated towards me. Be satisfied in your wrath that's against me. I like how uh, J. Vernon McGee puts it. It reminds me of what Bob has taught us time and time again about the word propitiation and how it also has another word that it's translated in the book of Romans, which is the the book mercy seat, right? The, they would sprinkle the butt on, on, the, on the mercy seat. They, it would, they would propitiate it. They would cover it in, in the blood of Christ. And he would, this, this man is saying, Oh God, create a mercy, mercy seat for me. Create a mercy seat so that my sins of breaking your commands might be covered by the blood of the Lamb so that I might be reconciled to you. That's a completely different word. It's a really important word. Yes, Lewis. Yeah, yeah, he, he understood this, this wasn't simply, he didn't simply need forgiveness. He needed full reconciliation, right? Jesus goes on to say this man was justified, but he knew he wasn't a just person. He was a corrupt person, and he was, he was, he was guilty of breaking the laws of God. It wasn't just forgiveness he needed because God's law demanded that sin be dealt with, that sin be uh, judged, so he was looking for, especially in light of the first part of this chapter, he was looking for a just judge. He was crying out over and over, God, be merciful. Please grant me justice. Any questions more at this point? Yes, Brother Marvin. I'm sorry? I don't know. I don't, we're certainly not told in the passage. Some people claim that Zacchaeus that we read in a couple chapters is, is the tax collector, but there's nothing to indicate that in the passage. Like I said, the idea, there were a lot of reasons why the, the people, the Jews, felt like these people were unclean and that these people were sinners, but ultimately the only thing that made them sinners was their extortion of the people. You could still be a tax collector and collect fair taxes and do your job, you know, as, as John the Baptist said, go and collect only what you're required to collect. 
So didn't mean that he needed to renounce being a tax collector, but he very well may have if he didn't believe in the practice anymore. Yes, brother. Anything else? No? Okay. Yes, sister. Amen. Sister Marcia, did you have a comment? And we say, uh, okay, uh, Lewis, you're going to get the last question.
Amen. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. Um, but we understand that that's, you know, all this sort of comes down to, like we're talking about, our heart condition, right? And that is the, that's the determining factor. That's what truly determines the results of these prayers. Because I see this sort of, you know, you know, Jesus said in, in, in the very next verse, in verse 14, he says, this man went home justified rather than the other. Right? It's, it's not an either-or thing. What just happened? Oh, sorry. He was justified. That, that word is a dedekaya menos. It means to justify, to vindicate, to set right. Exactly what this tax collector had asked for. Satisfy your wrath towards me and turn away your wrath that I might be reconciled to you is exactly what he was. He was justified. He was declared innocent before God. His crimes were no longer accounted to him. He was exalted, as we're told. Anybody who humbles themselves will be exalted. He was declared innocent before God and and allowed to enter into the kingdom of God. The other man was not said rather than the other. Like I said, this isn't an also situation. This is Thunderdome rules, right? For anybody who likes Mad Max, when I used to watch it as a kid, two men enter, one man leaves. Not both of these men were justified. The other man wasn't also justified. He didn't kind of get into heaven later on. It says that one man was justified, the other man was not. This is a definitive separation of these two people. They are not the same. Yes, Tom? Honestly, I didn't study that specifically. I didn't look at that word. I didn't have time to look at that word. To st- I wanted to. I didn't have a chance to. So that would be a good future study to look at that word and how it's used throughout Scripture. So, but sorry, I, I don't have that answer. Um, but yeah, this man was declared guilty. He was not righteous. He was not, a propitiation was not made, made for him. The wrath of God will be satisfied fully within this man himself. He will pay for his own sins. God held him with contempt. In verse 9, we're told that these, this parable was being spoken to those who held others with contempt. But in the end, the one who was declared guilty in the sight of God was the Pharisee. It was him that was viewed with contempt by God. Because for all the ways in which he looked around with his eyes open, looking at other people, judging himself, he couldn't see the God right in front of him. Meanwhile, the man who had his eyes closed the whole time had his sights fully on God. And that made all the difference. He was humbled. He was abased. He was set aside. He was truly set apart and made holy, but in the bad, in the wrong way. Yes, brother. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, the study, like I said, gave me an important, uh, and on my heart to study through that, that, the idea. I mean, I've always known justification is important, as we should. Um, but when you read this prayer, you think, you know, because it, it even says in the, the title, the parable's about prayer. You know, it gives you the sense when you read these chapter titles sometimes that, that, a, that, a, that a chapter or a passage has this particular focus. 
That's not actually the focus. It's not just on prayer. It's about so much more. It's about the, 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 the humble condition, the, con- the condition of somebody's humility and how that reflects on somebody who is truly a child of God, who belongs in the kingdom and will be justified compared to somebody who is not. And that's really, that's a, this is a really important parable. Um, and that's why when it comes to application, there's only one point of application. I usually try to put in more, and I'm sure there's many more we could talk about, but there is only one thing I want to talk about here, and that's the significance of this main point, and that is who are you in this parable? From the second you heard it, I'm sure your heart was turned to say, I'm like that tax collector, thinking about that day where you were saved by God or thinking about all those ways in which you bow your head before God and say, God, please be merciful. Please thank me. You know, thank you for, for, for saving me. But I would ask you to consider that there's many times where you're pitting yourself up against other people. The second you align with the tax collector, you become the Pharisee. The second you say, yes, I'm as good as the tax collector, you become unrighteous. You're self-justifying yourself, which you cannot do. Amen. Exactly. But it's, don't forget, it's an examination of ourselves in relation to God, never other people. By the, by the word that God gives us, we examine ourselves in light of that in relation to God. How do I stack up? How do I measure up to God in light of his word? Not other people. Brother. Oh, Mark, right, go ahead. I'll get to you, Thomas, just one second. Oh, yeah, definitely. That point was made. I actually meant to make that point, so thank you. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, because sometimes we do the opposite, right? We like to pray the prayer of Paul. I am the chief of sinners. I am the greatest of sinners. You can be all the more glorified through my sin than compared to other people's sin, right? Because we, we, we're, we're sort of pitting ourselves against other people. There is... The, the conversation between you and God about justification is a one person to one per, well one person to three persons relationship. That is the the sole context of that conversation. It is you and how you relate to God. The rest of the world should not even exist to you when you when you pray to God about that. Uh, Thomas had the next question. I'll get to you right after. Yeah. Those people that, that are determined that they're not going to go to heaven, it's because their sins are too great and that, that, that God couldn't possibly forgive them. Marcia, Marvin, then Paul, and we'll finish up with you. So, Marcia.
Amen. And that may just made me think just now of the idea of the fact that we compare ourselves so often to people means that we probably don't know about God as much as we should because we don't study enough. And I'm guilty of that. I don't. I mean, these, I love these studies because this is my best chance to study. I don't have. I'm tired, and I don't have the. You know, reading is a struggle for me. But when I am forced to take take a few weeks and read everything I can and study through a passage, that's when I I learn the most, and I'm and I'm grateful for that. So, but but we often don't know enough. We, we, we pit ourselves against people because that's what we see. That's what we observe. We're not observing God's character and his nature in, in his word. Brother Marvin, you had a question or comment. Mm-hmm. Just by the length of their beard sometimes. That's a reformed beard right there. I like that beard. But... Uh, Yeah, like I said, these people hearing the word Pharisee had a very clear picture, you know, except maybe the disciples. I like to think that the disciples, having gone through Jesus' ministry up to this point, hearing all the other parables and all the ways that they called hypocrites, heard Pharisee, they're like, oh, I know what's coming. But everybody else that, that hadn't been a common disciple of Jesus Christ had a very clear picture of what these people represented. Every time you hear about, you know, it constantly said that Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners because they were synonymous. They were, one, they were one group of people. They were the lowest of the low. The sinners and the tax collectors were the same thing. The Pharisees were the respected men. That's why he's always running into groups of them, right? Because they, 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 they feel themselves exalted above all other people. They, hand, they, they, they roam in packs, right? That's why they, I think that's why they're the most, you know, when we think about the wolves, yeah, they, they, packs, ro, wolves roam in packs, and people that are self-righteous, people that are self-justifying themselves, uh, Roman packs as well. Um, actually, we've got to move on. I'm sorry, but Pastor Paul, I'll give you the, the last question. Mm-hmm. 
Amen. Yes. Um, but like I said, don't be the Pharisee. Um, found this really good quote by J. Gresham Machen who wrote, No doubt we think we can avoid the Pharisee's error. God was not for him, we say, because he was contemptuous toward the publican. We will be tender to the publican, as Jesus taught us to be, and then God will be for us. It is no doubt a good idea. It is well that we are tender towards the publican, but what is our attitude towards the Pharisee? Alas, we despise him on a truly pharisaical manner. We go up into the temple and we pray and we stand and we pray thus with ourselves, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are proud of my own righteousness, uncharitable towards publicans or even as this Pharisee. We do the same thing that this man does. Don't be the Pharisee. Remember what this parable, who's this parable's audience was. In verse 9, it says, He also spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. This parable should serve as a warning to you to not uh, fall into the trap of basking in your own righteousness. Don't do it. Do you have a, yeah, Brother Martin. Amen. Yes. Um, so like I said, yeah, that's, that's my only point of application because I, I feel like it's that important. If you don't know what justification means or what it is, first study this portion of Scripture. Um, and I decided to take the last couple minutes to read what I, I forgot we were doing chapter 10 today, but next week the London Baptist reading is going to be from chapter 11, which is all about justification. So I just want to read it for a couple of minutes the London Baptist Confession says that those that God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. He does this not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. He does this for Christ's sake. He does it for Christ's sake alone and not for anything produced in them or done by them. He does not impute faith itself the act of believing, or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. Instead, he imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. This faith is not self-generated. It is the gift of God. Faith that receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness is the only instrument of justification. Yet it does not occur by itself in the person justified, but it is always accompanied by every other saving grace. It is not a dead faith, but works through love. By his obedience and death, Christ fully paid the debt of all those who are justified. He endured in their place the penalty they deserved. By this sacrifice of himself and bloodshed on the cross, he legitimately, really, and fully satisfied God's justice on their behalf, the propitiation. Yet their justification is based entirely on free grace because he was given by the Father for them and his obedience and satisfaction were accepted in their place. These things were done freely, not because of anything in them, so that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God would be glorified in the justification of sinners. 
From all eternity, God decreed to justify all the elect, and in the fullness of time, Christ died for their sins and rose again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit actually applies Christ to them at the proper time. God continues to forgive the sins of those who are justified. Even though they can never fall from a state of justification, they may fall under God's fatherly displeasure because of their sins. In that condition, they will not usually have the light of his face restored to them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, plead for pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. In all these ways, the justification of believers under the Old Testament was exactly the same as the justification of believers under the New Testament. So the conclusion here is Christ. You want a longer conclusion? Jesus Christ. It's his work. It's his ministry. It's his being and his relationship to you and the Father that accomplishes all of your justification. When you pray to God, when you ask for forgiveness, when you give God thanks, do solely because of the work, ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't compare yourself to anybody else. Don't compare yourself to anything else. Simply thank God for what he's done and for what he accomplishes not through you, but through Jesus Christ. Any final questions? No? Okay. Brother Paul, could you close us out in prayer? Thank you guys. Have a good week.